Hello, Renew. My name's Lisa. I'm going to read the scripture today that will be um, the sermon will be based off of. So just follow along on the screen with me. Um, Isaiah 43, 1 through 7, and 14 through 21. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as... Uh, fugitives, all the Babylonians, in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do not perceive it. I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen. The people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord God, thank you for, for your word. Thank you for this passage, Lord. I just pray um, a blessing upon Denise as she um, shares, um, just dives deeper into the scripture, Lord God. I just thank you so much for your presence and um, just who you are, God. We just uh, thank you for this community and just pray um, a blessing upon this day. Amen. You can have a seat. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our preacher for this morning, Denise Limber. I know Denise, um, like way back from that, they started coming like to uh, Norgate. We were in Norgate for um, a few years before we moved to Linwood. And um, I remember Yasha was so little and a baby, like <laughs> a few months old. But it's been, you know, <clears throat> fun just to um, see them again. They came back last year, back to Renew. And it's been such a blessing, and uh, we are, I think we're honored to have Denise um, share again this this week. So um, welcome, Denise, this morning. Well, good morning. 
Um, so as Magdiel said, we, Eric and I were part of Renew back when we were in Northgate, and then we had a baby, and it was too far of a drive because none of us were sleeping. And so we went to a church that was really close to home, but we're really excited to be back. We've been back for um, about a year and a half now, which is great. Um, so that's my husband, Eric. He's got two kids in his lap. Um, there's Maddie, who's three and a half, and she'll tell you that the half is really important. And um, Joshua is five and a half, and his half is also very important. Um, and that means that Eric and I have been parents for five and a half years. Um, and you know, when we first became parents, um, like a lot of people, there were so many things that we needed to learn. And some of those lessons were like the really obvious lessons, right? Like how to get the diaper on correctly, or that little boys have a really good range when the diaper's not in place. Um, but some of the lessons were a little bit less conventional. Um, for example, we learned that I curse like a drunken sailor when I'm woken up in the middle of the night. Um, usually not in front of the baby. Usually it's like under my breath as I'm wandering across the hallway to where the baby is. But there are definitely some choice words that bubble up from my sleep-deprived subconscious. Um, we also learned a lot about baby poop and spit up and how at some point those all become acceptable dinnertime conversation topics. Uh, but mostly, I think we just learned how hard it is to be a parent, right? It's really hard. And um, in that first year, I think the sleep deprivation was the hardest for me. Uh, my kids and my husband will tell you that I like to sleep. It's like my favorite part of the day, and I don't function very well on a lack of sleep. And so I remember that um, before Joshua was born, we had a friend who gave us this little banner that said, um, faithful. And it, it's actually still hanging in Joshua's room, and it was just a reminder of who God was, of his faithfulness, and kind of a celebration, because Joshua was a little bit of a, a miracle baby. We'd struggled with infertility, and so when he finally showed up, it was like this big celebration, right? And so late at night, I remember I would be rocking Joshua in his chair in his room, and I would look at that banner that said faithful, and I would just remember that God was faithful. <clears throat> But if I'm honest, sometimes it was more of a question, like, faithful, question mark, like, really? God, have you noticed that I haven't slept in six months? Like, where's the, the faithful prayer answering God in the middle of the night, right? Now, in hindsight, it's a pretty trivial example. Right, both my kids learned to sleep through the night. We all got through it. We're all pretty functional now, as long as we sleep through the night now. Um, but there were moments when it felt pretty heavy for us. And um, it often felt like God was just a little bit more passive than I wanted him to be. And the reality is that often in life, the situation is not so trivial, right? Um, when Eric and I first moved up here from Santa Barbara, I served as a chaplain at um, Harborview and UW. And the things that I saw in that hospital were very rarely trivial. Um, there were moments when 
you'd be in a room and, the, and just like the pain and the loss was so heavy that words would kind of fail. And you just, you just kind of had to sit there in the heaviness of it. There's, there was nothing else to do. The, the magnitude of the suffering that I saw in that place and honestly that I still see in the lives of people that I love, um, sometimes it's, it, it almost defies imagination, right? It's, it's almost incomprehensible. And whether we ask it or not, there's an elephant of a question that, that sort of fills the room in moments like that. And it's this one, is God faithful, right? Is God faithful when the rescue doesn't come? Is he faithful when the last breath comes too soon? Or the first breath doesn't arrive? Or the waited for kidney isn't on time? Or there's chronic pain and it just never gets better? Is God faithful then? And, and what does faithful even mean when there's that kind of suffering and it doesn't stop? right, when he doesn't rescue you from it. That's the question at the heart of our passage today. It's about God's faithfulness. Was God faithful to Israel? And by extension, can we believe that God is going to be faithful to us? And um, in order to understand the question, I think we have to do a little bit of a, a history refresher because we need to think a little bit about the context of our passage. So um, the book of Isaiah is actually sort of three books squeezed together. Um, chapters 1 through 39 were written in the 8th century BC. So um, probably the northern kingdom of Israel had started to fall, but Jerusalem, Judea was still standing strong. And those first 39 chapters are sort of a, a warning to Israel that if they don't turn back to God, they're going to be overtaken by a foreign power. And then that's exactly what happens. In the 6th century, um, Babylon conquers Jerusalem, and they overthrow the existing government, and they deport a lot of the population into Babylon. And the goal of that sort of exile in Babylon is sort of like a cultural genocide, right? They want to um, take the civic leaders and the cultural elite and the equivalent of modern day like influencers and they bring them to Babylon in the hopes of assimilating them into Babylonian culture and, and sort of erasing Jewish culture and identity. And so the second section of Isaiah takes place during that time period, during the 6th century, and probably maybe just during the end of the exile, just before the end of the exile. So in 538, um, King Cyrus of Persia takes over Babylon and lets some of the Jews return. And so that's sort of the third part of the book of Isaiah, the end of it. So the context of our passage, chapter 43, is that the Jews are in the midst of a crisis. The population is split between people living in captivity in Babylon and those who've been left behind to be ruled as a colonized people in this land um, that used to be theirs, right? And in both places, this Jewish identity is being actively erased. That's sort of step one of the colonizer's playbook, right? Get rid of the existing culture. 
And that might sound a little bit abstract, but there's actually lots of modern examples that can kind of give us a sense of what this would look like. I read an article, for example, that talked about um, apartheid in South Africa. And it, and it talked about the similarities between the Babylonian attempt to erase Jewishness and the white colonizers attempt to erase blackness in South Africa, to sort of create a narrative that says one culture is normal and superior and one culture is other or less than. Uh, a parallel in the US might be the forced assimilation of tribal communities. There was this concerted effort to erase tribal identities and replace them with Western values and customs. Uh, Old Testament sculptor, scholar Walter Brueggemann had a, a really uh, effective way of saying it, and he said this. He said, the intent of the empire was to talk the Jews out of Jewish perceptions of reality into Babylonian definitions of reality, to define life in terms of Babylonian values, Babylonian hopes, and Babylonian fears. In other words, to say that the only reality that matters is the Babylonian one. Or in South Africa, to say that the only reality that matters is the white one. Or in the example I mentioned in the US, to say that indigenous culture is irrelevant or primitive. And there's a trauma there, right? A trauma inherent not just in the forced removal that the Jews experienced, but also in that gaslighting around cultural values. I imagine that there are people in this room that can relate to that, that deep pain of living within a culture that devalues your history and your identity. And that's the world of the sixth century Jews. Their land isn't their land. They've lost autonomy. They're ruled by leaders they didn't choose. They're being told that who they are is inferior and that their culture and their traditions and their values aren't worth preserving. And yet woven throughout their Jewish experience is this story, this narrative that says, God rescued us, right? We serve a God who does miracles and he parted the sea and we came through it. We're his chosen people and God can rescue us. And the question that the narrative invites is this one, if God can do that, where is he? Right? Why are we still in exile? When's he coming to set us free? Is he going to part the sea again? Is he still faithful? And as usual, God's answer, it's never what we expect, right? So first he says, yeah, I'm faithful. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to gather your sons and daughters, and I'm going to bring them back to you, and Babylon is going to fall. Verses 14 through 15, he talks about how the ships that they took pride in, that they once used for trade, are going to be ships that they flee in. And then in verses 16 through 17, God says, remember that time that I rescued you from Egypt? He says, when I made a way through the sea and a path through the waters, how I drew out the chariots and the horsemen and the whole army and they were snuffed out like a wick. Do you remember that miracle? And at least in my brain when I read this, I imagine the Israelites with like so much anticipation. Like, yes, we want this. 
I picture like um, Baby Yoda with a plate of frog eggs. Like, yes, I want this. It's coming, right? There's so much eagerness. And God says, yeah, remember that thing? Forget about it. Not happening. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to rescue you in that way. And in fact, what we know from history is that that great rescue isn't all that victorious. Um, when the Jews return, it's not a big parade. It's like a slow trickle of people. And they return under the rule of another foreign nation, this time Persia. And after that, it's the Greeks, and then it's the Romans, and a parade of would-be rulers for the next several thousand years. Wait, what? Whereas my daughter would say, what? <laughs> she, she does it better than me, but really, what, right? It's not the answer we want. We want the miracle. We want the grand rescue of all rescues. We want God to part the sea and lead us in triumph. We want water in the desert and manna from heaven and the walls of Jericho to come crashing down. And sometimes we just want the baby to sleep through the night or the sick person made well, or the relationship restored. We want peace where there's war, and justice where there's injustice, and we want a two-year pandemic to finally be over once and for all, right? We want that miracle, we want the rescue. I want the miracle. Um, you know, sometimes I wish that God was more like a, a cosmic gumball machine and I could put in my little, like, prayer token and turn the crank and out would pop this shiny, round miracle. Maybe even in my favorite color, right? I want to be rescued on demand. And I think God is saying to Judea and to me and to us, I want so much more for you than that. That's sort of the message of the next few verses. Now, um, I'm going to talk about chiasms, and I feel like we kind of know those because I've heard Pastor Dave talk about them a lot. But if you haven't heard the word chiasm, um, a chiasm is just a thing that shows up in Hebrew poetry, and it's a way of using symmetry to make a point. Um, so there'll be like a key idea or a couple of ideas and then a central concept and then the initial ideas are repeated backwards. So it kind of looks like A, B, A or A, B, C, B, A, um, sort of like the first part of an X. And they're a great thing to know about because Hebrew poetry is pretty abstract. And so a lot of times you read through it and you think, I don't even know what it's saying, right? And if you look for that symmetry, a lot of times it will help you sort of tease out what is the actual message of this passage. And there's a chiasm in verses 16 through 21. So it looks like this. Um, it talks about the Exodus story. So God bringing life through the water in verses 16 through 17. And then verse 18, kind of the central idea, God says, forget the old. And then a repeat of that, look for the new. And then he talks about life through water again. And when we see that chiasmic pattern, it tells us that what's in the middle is kind of the key to understanding everything else. It explains what's at the beginning and the end. So God through the prophet is saying, I rescued you through water, but don't dwell on that, right? I'm doing something new. I'm bringing life through water in a new way. 
And the new way is so much better. Because the second time that God talks about life through water, it's not this single event in history. It's not a one-time rescue. The second time, God's talking about transformation. It's water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland, and the whole landscape is changing. So God's saying, don't get caught up in, in waiting for the miracle that you remember or even the one that you're imagining. Don't get stuck believing that that's all I can do because I can do so much more. And I need to do more. Because while you're convinced that Babylon and, and the exile is the crisis, while you're looking there, I see the deeper problem. I can't rescue you the old way because... Pharaoh isn't the problem anymore, and Babylon and exile isn't even really the crisis. The crisis is what's happening inside of you. The crisis is that impulse that you have within yourselves to turn away from me. It's your cruelty and your injustice and the way that you seem to ignore the foreigner and the widow and the poor. The crisis is this eagerness that you have to worship anything but me. The crisis isn't exile, it's you, and that demands a different kind of rescue. And the rescue is coming for Israel in small ways, but we know, right, that ultimately that rescue comes through Jesus, through the incarnation, through the resurrection. And God is saying, you're not going to see that if you're waiting for me to part the sea. If, if my faithfulness is defined as a repeat of the exodus, then God says, you're going to look at me and think, I'm not faithful. You're going to think I'm too passive or uninvolved. I'm doing this new thing, and it's beautiful, and you're going to miss it because you're caught up on the old thing, and you've convinced yourself that that's the only way that I can act. And I wonder if today God is maybe saying something similar. You know, sometimes I think a crisis in our nation is this, this ugly culture war, right? Like we're fighting over everything and it's hurting people. We fight over COVID policy and gender identity and how we talk about race in school. And that feels like a crisis to me, right? It has real consequences. But I wonder if God sees something bigger right? Like not so much a crisis about policy and discourse as it is about a people who've learned to get our identity from our tribal ideologies Amen. instead of our creator. Maybe it's about a people who are so desperate to belong that we're willing to trample our neighbors in the process. And maybe I think the rescue looks like instant peace or unity or everyone suddenly agreeing on COVID policies or having productive conversations about what we should teach in our schools. Some sort of truth, right, in, in the culture war. Or honestly, sometimes the rescue in my mind looks like everyone suddenly agreeing that my perspective is the right one. Um, but maybe God sees something bigger, right? And, and maybe his rescue looks like creating this, this beloved community of people who know who they are. And they know that they're infinitely loved and they're learning how to love their neighbors like that. Maybe we're not going to get that, that shiny round gumball of a miracle because God's doing a new thing. And the question is, do we see it?
And maybe in whatever our present crisis is, however we define it, God's rescue doesn't seem grand enough. It might seem passive or non-existent, but that might be because we're waiting for him to part the waters instead of having the spiritual appetite to imagine something new. I want to stop for a second, though, because I think there's a, a reality that we need to name. Because even if God is doing something bigger, even if the, the second part of that chiasm is really awesome, in the meantime, sometimes things still suck. Sometimes the promise of something wonderful coming down the road doesn't make the present reality feel all that much more palatable. And so I think it's right to acknowledge that even if we understand God's grace and even when we know sort of that broader redemptive narrative, that doesn't mean that we don't grieve the here and now. It doesn't mean that exile doesn't hurt or that we refuse to mourn the pain that we're experiencing. It just means that to the extent that we're able to, and we might not always be able to, but when we can, we choose to give God the benefit of the doubt. We choose to not constrain his faithfulness or his lack thereof to our ununderstanding of what the rescue should look like. And I think there's a little bit more to it even than that because there's grace in Isaiah 43 and there's a grace that applies even before the rescue. More than just God saying, hang on, it's going to get better. That's why I wanted us to read um, the first part. The lectionary text for today was um, 16 through 21, but I wanted us to read verses 1 through 7. Um, and I won't go into quite as much detail on this one, but there's another chiasm there. So um, verses 1 through 7, the beginning and the end sort of spell out all of the good things that God has done or he will do for his people, right? He says, I created you and I'm going to protect you and be with you and I paid a ransom for you. And then at the end, those ideas are sort of repeated in reverse order. And the middle of the X, that central idea is verse 4. God says, since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. So all of these other good things, I'm going to rescue you and give a ransom for you and protect you because you're precious and honored in my sight because I love you. So if verses 14 through 21 are sort of the promise of something new, 1 through 7 is basically just God's love letter to Israel and, and to us, right? God's saying, don't be afraid. I'm with you. You belong. I'll rescue you because you are precious to me, because I love you. And there's grace there even when we're still in the crisis, even before the rescue comes, and honestly, even if we don't understand it. I talked earlier about my time serving as a chaplain, and while I'm grateful for that season of my life, it was really hard. Um, pretty early on, I, I really started struggling with my faith. There was just so much pain, and I couldn't seem to grasp how I could continue to trust in the kind of God that would create a world with this much suffering and then not intervene or, or not intervene in the ways that I thought he should. 
If God can do anything, why did it so often seem like he did nothing? And, and how could I possibly reconcile the pain that I was seeing every day with the idea of a good and faithful God? How could he be faithful in those moments, right, when he didn't part the sea, when there was no miracle, when he was more passive than it seemed like he ought to be? And the truth is, I don't know if I'll ever have a satisfying answer to those questions. But a few months after I started doing chaplaincy, um, Eric and I went back to Santa Barbara, which is where we used to live, to visit friends. And um, it happened to be the start of Lent. So we went to our old church on Ash Wednesday. And partway through the service, the pastor said something about Jesus on the cross. Seems appropriate for an Ash Wednesday service. Um, and I honestly don't even remember what the message was. I don't remember what he was saying, but um, that image just kind of washed over me. And I pictured Jesus on the cross, and I thought about this divine, immortal being, this, this person who did not have to experience death, choosing to experience death because he was so compelled by love. And something shifted for me. And I felt like maybe I could trust that Jesus. I didn't understand that Jesus. And if I'm honest, I still often don't understand that Jesus. But I knew that there was something real there. I knew that the kind of Jesus, the kind of love that Jesus showed on the cross mattered. And I knew that the belonging that I received through that act of love would change the way that I experienced my own suffering and the pain and the suffering that I saw around me. And I can't really put it into words. It doesn't make sense. I can't explain it. There's just this weird, illogical, unexplainable comfort in knowing that I belong to this community that is deeply loved by God. And I think both parts of that statement are equally true, that I'm an object of God's love, and also that that love is bestowed on a community of people, not just me in isolation. The you in the verse 4 that we read, God loves you, is, um, he's talking about Israel. It's like a collective noun. It's, it's a group of people. And that feels worth mentioning because I think a lot of the churches that I attended when I was younger seemed to really kind of forget the second part, right? There was this big emphasis on my personal relationship with Jesus. And I heard it said lots of times that if I were the only person in the whole world, still Jesus would have died for me. Have you heard that? I understand the intent, right? It's, it's to make what Jesus did feel really personal to me. And for a season, it, it did. Like, it made it feel real in a way that maybe it didn't before. But I don't really believe that anymore because I don't think that that's enough. I think the creation of this beloved community was part of the point. The restoration of human relationships, the justice and the peace, the, the belonging to the people of God that's an essential part of the gospel. And the grace is not just in what Jesus did for me, but in what Jesus did for us. 
It's in the belonging, both to God, but also to the people of God. And even when the rescue doesn't come, or it doesn't come in the way that you had hoped, that grace is there, right? And maybe it doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't change the circumstances. We can name that, and still there's grace there. Because when you're sick and you're in pain and you're feeling hopeless, that grace remains, right? God says, I love you, and you belong. And when you're in a world that, that's trying to erase your identity, that tells you your story doesn't matter, that, that says that you're not good enough, God says, no, actually, you're precious, and I love you, and you belong. And when you're anxious and you're scared and you're so sick of being anxious and scared and the world just feels like more broken by the minute, still God says, and, and you belong, right? I love you and you belong. And when you're angry because God promises rescue, but then it never comes in the way you want, only in some ways and only from some things and not in that desperate gumball way that you really want. When you need God to part the sea and he tells you that that kind of rescue isn't going to come, still, God says, I love you and you belong. I'm with you. And it doesn't always make sense. And it doesn't end the crisis, and maybe it doesn't explain anything, but you might just find some grace in that belonging. And it might just be enough to sustain you until you're able to hear and believe the promise of verses 14 through 21. So that's how I want to close today. I want to read just that that central part of that that second passage. I'm going to read verses 18 through 19. And I want you, um, I want to invite you just to receive them with fresh air, fresh ears. Um, if you want to close your eyes, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine too. But I'm just going to read them again and invite you to receive them as a word of grace from God. God says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do not perceive it. God, I feel like um, so much of my life is just me saying I don't understand. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand where things are going. I don't understand where you are. Um, But I want to choose to believe that you are faithful. God, we want to trust in your faithfulness. Even when we don't see it, even when it doesn't make sense, God, we believe that you are faithful. And in the meantime, when things are hard, when things feel heavy, when we just don't even have the words, God, we thank you for the grace of belonging to you and belonging to your people. Would you let that wash over us? Would you give us a sense of of who you are 
and what that means for our own sense of being, for our sense of belonging. God, you're faithful and you're good. And we claim that. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.